0: Hello everyone and welcome today to Radically Normal. We're here with Dr. Andrew Walker, who is a professor of Christian ethics at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, Dr. Walker, thank you for joining us today.
1: Michael, Andre, it's uh, good to be with you both.
0: So today we're going to be talking about his, his new book coming out in May called Liberty for All, Defending Everyone's Religious Freedom in a Pluralistic Age. And uh, so, would you just, uh, before we get into the book, would you like to maybe introduce yourself further, maybe your ministry, your work, anything else?
1: Sure. So, as you noted, uh, I teach ethics at um, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and then run an academic institute there called the Carl F.H. Henry Institute for Evangelical Engagement, and then serve as a contributing editor to publicdiscourse.com, and then help do some um, editorial work for the council on biblical man and the womanhood and uh, my my general calling in the world is um, i'm passionate about the intersection of religion and politics and public theology and uh, ethics obviously that's what i teach at, this, at, at the seminary and within kind of the the field of ethics itself i'm really passionate about we're kind of recovering uh, a Christian natural law theory. I think that's uh, a missing piece to our public engagement, and um, it's something that I'm passionate about and working to kind of recover, and then also to, to frame in uniquely evangelical types of categories.
2: Awesome. Yeah, we're going to get into um, some of those passions of yours uh, as we go along in the interview. Uh, but before we jump into um, ethics and, and other things such as that, we we really wanted to give you a chance to. Talk about the new book. Um, So what is uh, kind of the the thinking behind this book? Why did you decide to write it? And why this argument uh, in particular? Um, And I guess like, can you frame uh, your answer a little bit um, around why it's important to protect the religious liberties of all religions and
1: not just those of the Christian faith? Sure. So if I get long-winded, I apologize in advance. Uh, Go for Uh, it. it. Go Go for it. it. This is, this is an adaptation of my dissertation. And so uh, when you look at the topic of religious liberty generally, uh, you'll find that there is a long tradition of religious liberty in an American context and to some degree in a, in a broader Western context. But a lot of the received consensus and tradition is that religious liberty is, is more an accident of history. It's a contingency of history uh, that there's not actually a substantive, coherent framework to it. And if there is a framework to it, it's often conceived as more of, a, of a, an issue pertaining to political philosophy and, a, and, and an issue pertaining to um, political society and constitutional governance. And it's, it's really one of those doctrines that we're told that is there to simply kind of manage human conflict. And I think there's some truth to that. Uh, but when I surveyed kind of how religious liberty has been thought about specifically within the kind of the Protestant tradition and in the evangelical tradition, I noticed that there was really no coherent substantive framework for thinking about religious liberty. And so uh, in kind of my worldview, religious liberty is is not merely about uh, the free exercise of religion and debates on um, establishment versus disestablishment type debates. Those obviously comprise the religious liberty debates, but religious liberty I think is, is a much bigger and broader topic for our public theology. And ultimately religious liberty is helping us to sort out the distinctions and the roles and the jurisdictions of the relationship between eternal power and temporal power, and how those um, differing jurisdictions and and relationships understand themselves coexisting within society, within um, the operations of the state, there's gonna have tremendous repercussions for how we understand the nature of religious difference in society. So if you think the state and the church ought to be united, um, okay, then what do you do with people who disagree on issues of religion and disagree on some matters of morality? And so this is to me, the way I, I frame it up in the book is this is, this is not simply an issue of public theology. It's a backdrop foundational pillar like issue of public theology because it helps us understand the age that we live in it helps us understand the mission of the church helps us understand the mission of the state and whether we are aware of it or not pretty much everything that we do as far as our role as christians in society it assumes some backdrop or horizon of religious liberty Um, you know a a common example that i would like to use is you know if you have uh, a christian advocacy organization that wants to um, produce laws that are restricting injustices like human sex trafficking. Well, the the ability to make arguments in the public square and the ability to to seek to try to make laws reflect justice, especially if you're a Christian, you're trying to figure out ways, how do I I bring my, my personal values? How do I bring biblical values? How do I bring the values of the church into relationship with culture, and then also relationship with the state itself. And so I'm not saying that laws need to be based on Bible verses necessarily, but I'm saying that for us to go from theological conviction to social engagement, to the creating of particular laws, uh, there are several hoops we have to jump through that have to figure out ways to honor the, the, the just, Jurisdictions of church and state and culture, um, and honoring the nature of difference in society. Um, that, you know, I would love if everyone were an evangelical Christian in society. Who wouldn't love that if you're a Christian? Um, that's not going to happen apart from Christ bringing his kingdom in full. And so, if Christ's kingdom has not been brought in to full yet, yeah, it's been inaugurated because of, because of what has happened at the cross and his ascension and his resurrection, that it hasn't been brought into full yet. And so what do we do in this intervening period of time in between the ascension and the second coming? Do we treat those of us? Do we we treat those who disagree with us as second class citizens? Um, Do we engage? what, What type of what type of discourse and persuasion do we engage in? Is it coercive? Is it uncoercive? And so religious liberty stands behind all of these questions. And so the the reason I wrote the book, um, to kind of come full circle perhaps, is to offer what I want to say is a coherent, biblical, theological, ethical understanding of religious liberty that both appreciates the role that Christians ought to have in society, that also appreciates the nature of pluralism, just by virtue of the fact that people are different in differing societies. Um, And so I I organized the book around three kind of broader theological categories, eschatology, anthropology, and missiology, and essentially argued that once you understand religious liberty through those three domains, religious liberty is not simply an accident of history. It's not a byproduct of people just figuring out how to live at peace with one another. Actually, religious liberty is integrally tied to, I think, actually the narrative of scripture. I think religious liberty is actually tied to how we understand that people come to encounter who Christ is. Um, And I think religious liberty is, is integrally tied to our role in society as Christians.
0: That's awesome. I'm really glad you brought up the, the three-part division of your book because I actually pulled up the table of contents. And uh, I saw that chapter two, you talk about the reign of Jesus and religious liberty. And you kind of mentioned the already but not yet uh, reality of the, of the kingdom of God. And so can you like flesh that out a little bit about how the reign of Christ is yeah. like the backdrop for religious liberty?
1: Right. So, I mean, there's there's so much confusion around this happening right now is a lot of times religious liberty is conceived of as um, a downplaying of religious difference, that all religions are essentially, uh, they're all essentially saying the same thing. So religious liberty is basically just um, a way to make harsh religious claims more neutral and so more relativistic. And so that's not what I mean by religious liberty at all. To me, religious liberty means being absolutely truthful and honest about what we believe as Christians. And what I believe as a Christian and what you all believe as Christians here as I'm talking with is that Jesus Christ is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so uh, religious liberty is not an eternal good. In the fullness of time, Christ is going to execute judgment on those who have not than their knee to Christ. And so uh, I'm not trying to make religious liberty more than what it should be, but I'm, I'm trying to make it more than something than how it's treated today in, in society. And so it's, it's not eternal. It's, it's what I call a penultimate doctrine. It doesn't refer to ultimate matters because there is no ultimate right to idolatry um, in, the, in the full sweep of history. There is, I believe, a penultimate political right be wrong on matters of, of religion in this age and society that we live in. So how do we know that, or, or if we trust in Jesus's kingship to mete out judgment on those who are wrong on matters of religion, there's an implication of that. If, if it's Christ's responsibility to execute judgment, it's not our responsibility to execute judgment. It's also not the responsibility of government to execute judgment over what is false religion or not. Um, I'm not sorry, I'm trying to say that the state has nothing to do with religion. I believe that religion, that the state should accommodate itself to religion, but the state has not been set up as a referee over theological matters in, this, um, in, in the scriptures. And in fact, it sounds somewhat scandalizing to say this, but there is no argument um, in society or in, in scripture that says that for a society or a government to be rightly ordered and legitimate, that it has to be exhaustively Christian. And I think that's tied to our understanding of eschatology, that this age, the mission of the church is, I mean, think about the language of mission itself. Mission implies that all has not yet been brought under the Lordship of Christ. So if, if Christ is King Means he's also king over the conscience, and so when we think about what is the conscience, the conscience is that seat of cognition, of understanding, of comprehension that people individually in themselves come to understand the gospel in light of. So I can't convert other people. You can't convert, or you can't actually make someone a Christian. We can we can share the gospel with them. But conversion is something that has to happen internally, voluntarily, uh, non-coercively. And why is that? Because we think the, the the conscience is something that's going to be judged. The conscience is something that's going to be judged by the person who has the authority to execute judgment over the conscience. And that's Jesus, because Jesus has been given um, that authority over the human person and over the conscience. We, we read there's several places in Scripture um, you know, it's appointed that, that man must die and be judged, and that's Christ's authority to, to judge. But there's one other dimension of Christ's lordship and kingship that in, informs an understanding of religious liberty, is that um, his kingship means that he retains unique authority over areas that the state does not, and so th- if if the kingdom of God is the overall kind of backdrop of how we understand the the narrative of scripture unfolding. um, It means that we are living in this in between the time period, which is what I want to call um, call the seculum. Um, When you hear the in, in the book, I talk a lot about the secular, and the secular is a really misunderstood concept. Secular as you hear it today is more of a term brought up by progressives and liberals to talk about keeping religion outside the public square that this is a secular domain we don't talk about religion that's actually a deviation from how secularism has been traditionally understood secularism has traditionally meant um, it's an idea pertaining only to those non-eternal realities and so governments are considered secular entities because they're not designed to mediate divine reality Um, cultures are secular realities insofar as cultures change. Um, But what is eternal? What is eternal is the kingdom of God. What's eternal is the kingship of Christ and the kingdom of God. Those are eternal realities. So we then have to say these non-eternal, these penultimate realms, these penultimate authorities, they've not been given certain jurisdictions and control. And we would say that they don't have control over religion, they don't have control over the state, for that matter. So I'll stop because otherwise, I can keep going and unpack every paragraph of the book. Um, but I think, hopefully, this is the, the the point of the book is coming through a little bit.
0: No, that's awesome. So uh, it kind of reminds me of how the Baptist faith and message also says God alone is Lord of the conscience. And so going along with what you said about how the state cannot determine what's ultimate for people that doesn't have that jurisdiction. If somebody was new to this concept or wanted to dive deeper into it, where would you tell them first to look in scripture and like how they should, if they wanted to begin talking to it or talking about it to other people, like how they should
1: advocate for it, if that makes sense. Sure. That's a good question. So a, a couple of things I would point to, I would point to, um, what, what realms of authority have been given to the state. And um, when you look, I mean, we, we are living in a New Testament age, um, and so you look at passages like Romans chapter thirteen, which is kind of the, the governing principal text for how Christians think about uh, the ordination of government. And you'll notice there, uh, there, in First in, in Timothy two and First Peter two, for that matter, um, the state has a very limited role. The state is there to pursue matters of intra-human justice. So justice between humans, it's not there to settle disputes over um, divine matters of justice. Uh, It's there to punish evildoers, um, to bear the sword. Um, And so in in that sense, the state actually has a limited, it's it's a limited um, role, it's a limited government. Uh, You know, limited government is often a conservative term but there's a sense in which if you're making the statement that government is not designed to mediate divine rule, then you're saying it's, it's limited. There's, there's, there's separate jurisdictions that the government is there for temporal matters pertaining to the common good. The church is there to point people to, um, the spiritual good, which is found in Christ and, um, eternal matters pertaining to the coming of the kingdom. So you have Romans 13, I would also point people um, towards, honestly, something that, that we may not necessarily um, intuitively think about is the Noahic covenant. So I spend a lot of time in the book talking about the Noahic covenant and its function. And I borrow a lot from the work of David Van Drunen and Jonathan Lehman. And so I, I kind of see myself piggybacking off of some of the good work they've done and what they both argue for, and I which I think is right is when you look at how God has reconstituted the social order after the flood, he reconstitutes the social order in Genesis chapter 8 and 9 in the Noahic covenant. And the Noahic covenant is what we want to call a preservative covenant. It's not a redemptive covenant. And that's what makes it distinct from other types of covenants in scripture. And so when God reconstitutes the social order after the flood, what does he say is the task of humans in the Noahic covenant in this new creation covenant it says to have families engage in industry and productivity cultivation of culture and um, procreate exercise dominion through the propagation of the species you'll notice in the Noahic covenant that uh, there is not a calling for individuals to have proper theological confession for them to be rightly participating in the social order. It means that insofar as humans are setting up systems of justice, insofar as they're creating uh, family networks, insofar as they're engaging in productivity and creativity, humans are all rightfully participating in the social order regardless of their religious confession. So it's not as though Only Christians have a right to engage in in culture-making. No, everyone has a right to engage in culture-making because you can do culture-making without having to make proper theological confessional belief. Now, we want to say as Christians at the same time, if you're not making proper theological confessional belief, you're missing out on the fullness of, of what God has for you as a human being. But it does mean that cultural activity is a good that all people have the ability to participate in um, and, to, and to create for themselves. One of the examples um, to kind of make this more actionable is you take an institution like marriage. Um, is marriage only valid if it's two Christians who are getting married? We would say, no, that's not how we think about marriage. Marriage is valid wherever uh, one basic requirement is met. Uh, where there's complementarity between the sexes. So male and female can get married, male and female, regardless of whether they're atheist, Jewish, or Muslim. And why is that? Because I would say, based on Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and then reaffirmed in Genesis chapters 8 and 9, you have this command for people to engage in the the propagation of, of the species. And society has to have that happen. And it's important for family life to be prospering and flourishing in society and that can happen apart from everyone all being on the same page uh, as as on matters of religion so all that to say um, the Noahic covenant is a preservative covenant for all people and when you look at the Noahic covenant um, participation in society is not dependent upon people making right theological confessional belief meaning that the state does not make systems of justice and declare what systems of justice are based on one religion in particular and how can we say that's possible well when you look at um, genesis chapter 9 5 and 6 uh, that the classic passage that a lot of theologians would say is is the foundation for something like natural law that god has instilled basic principles of justice in human society that make a modicum of common grace possible, and that we're not as worse off as we could be. And that's the whole notion of common grace, that God preserves the world despite human sinfulness.
2: That's really good. And uh, in an article that you wrote uh, recently, sorry, published uh, on the Gospel Coalition, you kind of speak to um, the Christian or or the person who might think that uh, Christians or Christianity in in the public sphere in the public sphere uh, should have uh, some of those like extra protections or or kind of advocate for that and, and you uh, uh, speak to this um, saying that to think that Christianity needs legal protections not afforded to other religions is to betray our confidence in the gospel and you quote Romans uh, one uh, verse sixteen could you expand a little bit on that and and speak to that. Uh, for audience who who might be uh, still you know wondering uh, what all this means for them and, and how they evangelize and talk to the people
1: sure i mean there's there's um i think uh an instinct that I can understand and sympathize with to a degree but i that i think is still mistaken and the instinct is well christians have it right and what's right needs to be protected in the fullness of the law because if it's if it's True, it ought to be heralded from the top down, from the institutions of power in society. I can understand why someone would think that. The problem is, I think it miss- misses or, or overlooks the issue we've discussed already, which is what is the jurisdiction of the state? I don't think it's matters of religion. Two, um, if we're saying to ourselves that we need the state to back up Christianity, What we're saying is we need assistance in essentially the gospel being credible. And so you have to work this from the obverse perspective as well. Where the church does not have political power, is the gospel still credible? And we would say, yes, absolutely. Which means it doesn't rely on a handout from the state for the power of the gospel being powerful. the 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 power of the gospel is intrinsic to the gospel itself and when we say that we need the state to advocate for or lobby on behalf of or be beheld to a particular type of religion what we're saying is that religion can't effectively stand on its own two feet Um, it's not confident enough to engage in the marketplace of ideas on its own that requires some form of welfare assistance, is what I want to call it. Um, I, don't want to, I don't want a theology of welfare that says for us to be able to perpetuate and, and be the Christians that God has called us to be, that it requires affirmation from the state. Um, and I, I say that um, both from a contemporary manner, but when you look historically at the relationship of, of how religion and or, or church and state have commingled with one another, it's been disastrous. I mean, one of the arguments I have against the union of church and state is to simply look at history and show me where it's been done in such a way that you would want that repeated or, or replicated for a new time. Um, I think the reason, one of the reasons that that Western Europe is just spiritually dead is you had the, the combination of both infant baptism and church-state union. And what happened? How do you kill churches? You kill churches by Uh, being unable to distinguish between who's regenerate and who's unregenerate. And so when those boundaries get blurred and membership in the state is coterminous with membership in the church, everyone's a Christian and also no one's a Christian. And so all that begins to persist is nominalism and nominalism over time is going to wither away when you have cultural forces that are seeking to displace that nominalism, which is what we have happening in America right now. On the one hand, I think it's an absolutely tragic mistake for American culture to abandon its historic kind of Christian moral attachments. At the same time, um, I think it's going to force the church to say, here's who we are. We're not changing. Uh, I, I've been reading in 2 in Timothy and in, in the whole New Testament, you'll, you'll see passages like, be firm, be immovable, stand firm. effectively don't move, don't don't bend your doctrine to fit the spirit of the age. And those who don't bend their doctrine to fit the spirit of the age are the ones we understand who are faithful Christians. Um, And so I think the the shedding of a Christian civilization is also going to lead to um, heartache for a lot of Christians. It's also going to, to, to lead to a lot of reliance on Christ and the blessings of Christ. When he says in scripture, blessed are you when, when you're reviled in my name. I mean, do we believe that? I feel like a lot of Christians, the whole goal is to run from that. So we're, we're, we're actually running from the very thing that Christ tells us to pursue and to seek, which is faithfulness and to, and to understand that there's blessing when you're reviled in his name. That's really good. Uh, To flip the perspective a little
0: bit, I could see uh, Andre and I both have uh, unbelieving friends and I'm sure listeners of the podcast do or unbelievers listening to this. And so I could see them looking in on our conversation and kind of thinking, well, of course, you think religious liberty for even all people is good. You don't want the state determining what's ultimate for any faith. And uh, you believe that your own gospel is is good enough without the state's assistance, which we do think, but what would you say to somebody who is an unbeliever, somebody who doesn't practice a religion? Like why should religious liberty be important to them as well? Does that make
1: sense? Yeah, sure. Yeah, that's a good question. So um, religious liberty is, is bound up in a broader question um, of, of just liberty in general. And the, the whole notion I think of, of liberty in general is uh liberty reflects the image of god in us and so god has constituted us with the ability to live authentically and to constitute ourselves voluntarily and it's the soul's desire to live freely and authentically now obviously states can rightly step in when there's law breaking that's going on and saying yeah you can't pursue that type of authenticity because that's gonna that's that's criminal Understood. Um, But liberty is something that's intrinsically important. Well, I should say it's it's instrumentally important because it helps us fulfill our calling to be self-constituting moral agents. And so even if someone is using their liberty wrongly, we're not saying that someone's how someone chooses to to use their liberty is good. We're not saying that whatsoever. We're not relativists. What we're saying is um, we're protecting how someone grasps through their cognitive faculties what they understood, what they understand to be true, good, and beautiful. And so, liberty basically says we're going to leave space for people to be wrong in how they want to constitute their lives, because the obverse of of Liberty is to create a regime that is hyper moralistic, rigid, puritanical, invasive, and it is basically involved in, in all areas of someone's life. Um, but, but Liberty is there to help us live lives of, of flourishing. And, and, and Liberty is not simply the, the, the ability to do what one wants. That's a, that's a, a pollution of the term. Liberty classically understand, understood is the ability to do what one ought. The idea that there are callings on our lives. There is that natural law that we're to live in accordance with. And so the government gives space for people to live out those, those pursuits of liberty while also recognizing that people can misuse their liberty. But uh, so that, that's, that's one reason I think non-Christians should care about religious liberty. The second reason is um, in a nation state like ours, we all share equal status under the law. There's an implication of that. The implication is that all of our rights are reciprocally bound up with one another. So the rights of the Christian are the rights of the Muslim, are the rights of the atheist, and wherever the state begins to encroach into areas of liberty, it necessarily begins to encroach in other areas of liberty as well. And so the uniqueness of the American design, and, and please hear me, I'm not trying to make America the biblical understanding of, of religious liberty and the nation state, even though I think it has it pretty darn right in a lot of ways. Liberty and religious liberty, it, it's, it's forging a presumption. And the presumption is, humans ought to be free up until the government says we have to restrict your liberty at this certain line. And I, I like this because it means the burden is on the government for the government to prove when they ought to restrict our, our liberty. The burden for us to exercise or, or the burden of proof for us to um, validate our liberty is not on us. The default is you're free up until you can't be free. Uh, It's the job of the government, and I think that's a a great default position to be in because it's saying to the government, you have limited powers. You're not designed to play every single role in all facets of human life and human organization, that there are realities pre-political to the, the power of government itself, that the government is there to simply recognize, not redefine, or necessarily to control.
2: That's really good. And I just wanted to thank you so much for, you know, all the insightful um, responses you've had to the questions that we prepared for today's interview. But there are a few lighter questions that Michael and I like asking at the end of um, our interviews and uh, potentially just to give people, um, you know, more um, people they can be looking into and uh, listening to potentially. Um, So the first question is, you know, who has been the most influential uh, Christian author or pastor or, uh, you know, podcast host or, or leader in the past few months that has has uh, helped shaped you in any way that you'd, you'd recommend to our listeners to have another resource?
1: Yeah, so the, the greatest living intellectual force in my life is um, he's a professor at Princeton, Robert P. George. Um, he's on Twitter, he's on Facebook, he writes everywhere. Um, he himself is actually a, a conservative Catholic. And I, I disagree with his Catholicism. Obviously, I'm a, I'm a Southern Baptist. Um, but his understandings of political authority, his understandings of morality and ethics, um, I don't I don't see anything in his convictions there that are inconsistent with my evangelical and Protestant convictions. We would obviously disagree on soteriology and ecclesiology, but on ethics, there's really no disagreement. So I would simply say, uh, check out anything, written by uh robert p george or he's got tons of youtube videos out there as well i mean he's he is uh he he combines both tenacity of conviction with also graciousness of spirit and he's also just whip smart and i think we need more of that awesome awesome
0: awesome thanks so much and just uh as andre said some lighter questions our lightest question is uh we've done this starting going back to last season but we ask every guest, because uh, we're big coffee drinkers, if you have a favorite coffee drink or if you even drink coffee or anything of that sort.
1: Yeah, I do. I have two cups of coffee every single morning. It's a part of my kind of sacred rituals. Um, but a favorite coffee drink. Uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of uh, the caramel macchiato. And Starbucks has this new um, brown sugar oat milk espresso thing uh, that's pretty great. But also, uh, the, a green tea latte is, is right at my alley as well. Okay, I've never tried a, a green tea latte,
0: but thanks for the recommendation. Yeah. And uh, again, thank you for uh, the interview. And uh, we just commend everyone to check out your book when it comes out. May 4th, correct?
1: Yep, May 4th, thank you.
0: May 4th, uh, the book is called Liberty for All. I know I'll be grabbing it as soon as it comes out. And thank
1: you for joining us again, Dr. Walker. Thanks, guys, appreciate it.